Well, if Oregon wants to get back to the Pac-12 championship game in 2023, they have to do a lot of things different from a year ago. But they have to play really well on the road, perhaps most of all. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you haven't already, please like, comment, subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen to or watch the show, which today is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Go to birddogs.com slash college and they'll throw in a free custom Bird Dogs Yeti style tumbler with every order. Mine is in the pantry. Yours can be too, so go get your next order today. Road games, offensive coordinators, and a little bit more on the 12-team playoff. All of that and more coming on today's show. But Oregon has to do a lot of things well in order to get to the Pac-12 championship game this year. And look, they have a team that is good enough to get back to the game where they had been in each of the three previous seasons. One of them was a COVID year, but like, okay. Each of the previous two full seasons of college football, Oregon had been there before last year couple of unfortunate games, yada, yada, yada. They don't get there. So how do we get back? There are a lot of things that we could talk about specifically within the team that everydayers know we've been talking about for quite a while here on the show, whether that's pass rush, pass coverage, the offensive line gelling, Bo Nix playing well, Will Stein having a good year in his first season as OC. But I think schedule-wise, the road games are going to be pretty crucial for the Ducks because the Pac-12 as a conference is awesome which is going to make it tougher for Oregon, yes, but is also going to give us an accessible path to the playoff if they put together that sort of season because they're going to have at least, we don't have an AP preseason top 25 yet, but ESPN's FPI top 25 has got five Pac-12 teams in there. That's probably how many, maybe six. Maybe six will end up in the preseason AP top 25, but regardless, the Pac-12 at any point in time throughout the course of this season, I think we'll have at least three or four, and at most five or six teams in the top 25. It is that sort of league. But when you go through Oregon's schedule, the road games are going to be pretty darn critical. Now, a season ago, counting Georgia as a road game, which I do because a neutral site, wink, quote unquote, for those of you listening on podcasts, that was a wink at the camera, obviously, a neutral site game in Athens, or in, I'm sorry, in Atlanta, Big drive from Athens. Like, okay, the crowd was, what, 85-15 Georgia fans? That was a road game. So factoring that in as a road game in 2022, Oregon went 4-2 away from Autzen Stadium in the regular season a year ago. Losses to the Georgia, the Beavs, and then beating Washington State in thrilling fashion, as we all probably remember, Colorado, Cal, and Arizona. So They didn't really have a signature. I mean, Washington State is a solid win on the road, a game that Oregon probably should have lost, but also, on the other hand, should have won by more if we hadn't kept stumbling over ourselves and, you know, doing the cartoon step on the rake and having it come up and whack us in the face every time we got down into the red zone. But four wins on the road, two losses, both against good teams. The road games that Oregon has this year, in order, are Texas Tech, Stanford, that's week five, Washington, that's week seven after the bye, Utah, and Arizona State. So if Oregon's going to get to the Pac-12 championship game this year, I think it's pretty fair to assume, given the strength of the league, 
their record needs to be at least nine and three, but one of those losses would probably have to be to Texas Tech. So for their conference losses, you got to be, or for their conference record, rather, you have to be at least seven and two. I, I think that's at least what you have to be, might have to be eight and one to get there, depending on how things shake out. I suspect there's going to be a lot of Pac 12 cannibalism, as is often the case in our beloved Conference of Champions at this point. It's just what we've come to expect. It's one of the reasons the Pac 12 can't get a team into the playoff because a team gets close. And then Arizona State beats Oregon in 2019. And a team gets close, and Oregon beats Utah in 2019. And a team gets close, and Oregon stumbles down the stretch against Utah. And USC gets close, and Utah beats them in the Pac-12 championship game. It's just kind of the way things have been going. I have no indication that that isn't going to be the case again because there's so many good teams in the league. I think getting through an entire schedule with just one loss in the Pac-12 for the teams that are out here would be pretty difficult this season and will be pretty difficult this season. But... When I look at the the road games this year, Texas Tech, Stanford, Washington, Utah, and and Arizona State, I think there there are, there's an expectation record, a baseline for you know what you can determine as mildly successful or at least decent, what's attainable, and then you know what would be great but maybe not uh, not as likely in there. This all stems from a question, by the way, that came in via the YouTube comments, and you can always be a part of the mailbag. Drop one in the YouTube comment section or hit me up on Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks. DMs and mentions are always wide open, especially for all you wonderful Duck fans out there who I very much appreciate listening to or watching the show. This one was was from uh, Skirt Mayo 1563 34. The pause in there is because there was a space in between the 1563, which was attached to the Skirt Mayo, and then the 34 is separate. So... He says, hey, Spencer, I love your insight into the Oregon Ducks. Appreciate you. What do you think or expect about our record for games on the road this upcoming season? Do you think it'll be pleasant or unpleasant for Oregon fans? Well, how we perform on the road will be reflective of how we are performing over the course of the entire season, I tend to think. Now, there are big games that Oregon plays at home this year, and there are big games that Oregon plays on the road. Biggest games at home are, I think, USC first, probably Oregon State second, biggest road games. I think Utah, Texas Tech, Washington, you can put those in all sorts of orders for various reasons. Could be a fun segment to kind of dive into, like, what's what's the biggest road game? Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we'll come back to that later. But anyway, I digress. So I think the baseline expectation with those five road games, which, by the way, is a break for the Ducks to have uh, seven games at home and five games on the road this year, sets up well, or at least to give themselves a chance to get back to the Pac-12 championship game. I think a baseline expectation of like the bare minimum for what we could possibly determine as successful or doing solidly is three and two. That's like baseline. Like if, if they're under 500 in those road games, things are not going well. Now, if they were to go two and three on the road, my guess is those losses would be to Texas Tech, Washington, and Utah, who are all good teams. But Oregon is favored against Texas Tech on the road, only by four points. Definitely something we'll discuss on a later episode of the show, which is why you should subscribe wherever you're listening or watching if you haven't already to get you as ready as possible for the season, which is ever approaching as we are at the end of June. But that would be the most likely outcome. And the reason that two and three would just be frustrating, not acceptable, season crushing, however you want to put it, is because you either have, I think, three losses to Washington, Utah, and Texas Tech, 
or you have lost a game to Stanford or Arizona State, who are in year one of their rebuild with their new coaching staffs. Now, ASU's brought in, you know, some talent via the portal, but still, they should not. There is no world in which Oregon should be losing that game or that it should be competitive the way it was in 2019. Oregon almost had it. We're one stop away, yada, yada, yada. We don't have to go back down that miserable rabbit hole there. So I, I think baseline expectation for what we could call successful is three and two. And I think you could look at that and say, hey, we did well on the road, you know, going three and two in these five road games, because if you beat Texas Tech and then split with, uh, you know, Utah and and Washington, maybe, or have an upset, or sorry, I, I said that wrong. If you lose to Texas Tech, that doesn't kill your Pac-12 title hopes and then you split with Utah and Washington, preferably beat Washington and lose to Utah, it wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't be utter disaster. You'd also have to see how the games play out. That's the other things you say like, oh, well, you know, you should never lose that game. Well, if you lose the game like you did against Washington a year ago because Bo Nix got injured, okay, that kind of changes the context, right? Like if Bo Nix gets hurt in the first quarter and Ty Thompson has to come in, are we viewing that as the same as Bo Nix playing the entire game in healthy fashion? No, I, I don't think uh, I, I don't think we can or or should do that. So I think three and two is the baseline expectation. So how should we view four and one or five and zero oh in in the road games this year? There are a lot of different ways to to kind of view that, but I have thoughts on on both of those. I've also got thoughts on bird dogs because summer is in full swing. I'm about to go back to the Pacific Northwest for the entire rest of the summer because it's awesome. And guess what? My bird dog shorts are coming with me because they're comfortable. They are versatile. They can do everything that I want to do this summer. Their stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg by giving you a truly sculpted look. Bird dog shorts do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but they fit way better. They fit better than regular shorts as well. They're made of a stiff, restricting cotton, unless you're like me who wears basketball shorts all the time. But all the people who don't do that because I'm definitely weird and the outlier there, you got to go get the Bird Dogs shorts. So go to birddogs.com slash college. Get a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's all you have to do. Go to birddogs.com slash college for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You don't want to miss, you won't want to take your Bird Dogs off this summer, we promise you. So go get your next order today. I hope all you everydayers out there who watch on YouTube look forward to the second segment sip that we just completed as much as I do. Because when I get on my opening rant every day here on the show, by the time I get to that second segment and by the time I'm in like the end part of the live read there, I'm so ready for it. And now that we've had it, we're so ready to keep going. So three and two on the road, baseline expectation this year, I think for the Ducks. Anything less than that, total disappointment means there's a massive letdown somewhere plus you know if, if the wins are against Stanford and ASU and you lost to the three other teams that probably means we're going eight and four at best in the regular season and that's not what we're striving for here either and there there could be other problems at play depending on how those games look so I think with, with regards to these games away from Autzen Stadium where Oregon has been very very good till that Washington loss I believe it was 23 consecutive someone can fact check me on that I'm pretty sure it was 23 consecutive home wins and Oregon's had one of the best home field advantages there thanks to all of you who have been packing that place week in and week out for years on end but 
The road games are going to be crucial here. And I do think when you look at this lineup of road games, four and one is very attainable. Now, I don't think it's a guarantee. I don't think it's easy to go four and one. I don't think you have four blowout wins here and, you know, one close loss. I don't think that's what you're looking at. But if, if you go four and one in, in, excuse me, in these five road games here, I did Italian earlier and it's kind of catching up to me, but we're, we're, we're fine. We're grinding as always. If you're going four and one in these games, I think the most likely outcome there is you beat Stanford and Arizona State, you beat Texas Tech, and you split with Washington and Utah. I think that is frankly the most likely outcome here, but I don't think that it's that three and two is that far off base. But five and zero oh would be great. Obviously, if you win every game away from Austin Stadium, like if you told me right now, Oregon goes five and zero. Oh, away from Watson Stadium in the regular season, hard to see how we aren't 11-1 and and going to the Pac-12 championship game. Now, do I think that 5-0 and is particularly likely? I do not. Not because I don't think this Oregon team is good, but because I know that other teams are good too, and it's tough to win on the road, as we know. So, like, like for instance, the Oregon State game. We blow that lead on the road. The year before, we had a big lead. Oregon State started mounting a comeback, and we were able to hold down the fort and win the game. That's kind of the difference there. It makes a big difference, right? Home field advantage is not some made-up media narrative. It's a very, very real thing. So I don't think 5-0 and is likely. I, I don't know if I'm going to be seen as a hater for this comment, but I think 3-2 and is more likely than 5-0. and I think it is more likely Oregon beats... Texas Tech, Stanford, and Arizona State, and then loses to both Washington and Utah than it is we beat Texas Tech, Stanford, and Arizona State, and we win at Washington and at Utah. We all remember what happened the last time we went to Salt Lake City, right? It wasn't good. Different staff, different team, different players. I understand that. But that's still a thing that happened. It's all in our memory banks. So I think 4-1 and would be the ideal outcome if I had I don't know if 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 I, I I know that that is the ideal and most realistic outcome but the I don't know comment was in reference to what my mind was going to next which is if I had to bet on what our road record would be this year I would lean towards four and one but honestly I would say 50 percent four and one and I would say like 40 percent three and two 10% 5 and 0. That's where I would lean. As always, drop your thoughts in the YouTube comments. Let me know how you guys are feeling about all these games and whatnot because there's some tough opponents in there. I mean, only a four-point favorite against Texas Tech. It's, it's telling that we're a road favorite for sure, but that's early in the season. That's not going to be an easy game. Utah and Washington are going to be good teams, and they are tough environments, especially Salt Lake City. So, all right, that's enough about that. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, this from Andrew. I have a hypothetical question. I have a realistic or maybe hypothetical answer. I don't know. View it however you want. One of Coach Lanning's many talents is finding highly talented coordinators, going from Kenny Dillingham to Will Stein. Yeah, I agree. But that also means he's going to have to re- having to replace them as they get hired away for head coaching jobs. Dillingham had a solid year, a little more than solid. We averaged like 38 points a game, and now has his own team. Stein lateraled from UTSAOC to run a more talented program. I think that's not a lateral move. That's an upgrade for him, uh, which could lead to him 
having his own head coaching gig if the offense shine this season at Eugene. I completely agree. Long setup, but here's the question. Is it possible to retain a long-term, highly skilled OC in today's college football world? Because success breeds offers, and I don't know that it's possible to keep an offensive guru at any position but head coach nowadays. The short answer here is no. Now, the long answer is there are individuals who don't aspire to be a head coach. For example, I was talking about this with Carter Baines of 24-7 Sports and Beaver Blitz, who's who's a really good guy. He's been on the show before. I think we talked about the Oregon State game uh, last year. He's got a bunch of good content. Go check him out on, on, on Twitter. But Carter was talking, Carter and I were talking about Trent Bray, the Beavers defensive coordinator, who has completely revitalized that team entirely. And, you know, I, as an outsider, have looked at what he's done and said, boy, hard to see how that guy isn't a head coaching candidate one day. And Carter said, mm, unless it was for Oregon State, don't think he actually wants to be a head coach, at least right now. There are very few guys in today's world. It's a common trait when you're hiring young people, and that's been a trend for Dan Lanning, right? Dillingham, young. Stein, young. Tosh Lupoy is older-ish, but again, kind of on the younger side. Alik Terry, young. Matt Pallage when he was here, young guy. Chris Hampton, younger guy. When you hire younger coaches, you are the, the, the upside is you can connect with players well. You know they're very passionate. You know they're almost always going to be very driven, and they're motivated. But that motivation can often be, I want to have a head coaching opportunity one day. So they're going to come and do the best job they can, but then also try and capitalize on that success. And I don't hold it against coaches when they do that. I know that some fans do. I personally cannot sit here and say that I do because that would be incredibly hypocritical on my part. My first job out of college was in in Wilberton, Oklahoma, at Eastern Oklahoma State. I was there for one season because, as many of you have probably figured out by now, I am a young and very ambitious guy. So when the next opportunity presents itself, I am going to take that opportunity because I have aspirations for where I want to go in my broadcasting career. So when coaches do the same thing, I completely understand it. Now, Trent Bray, you know, not having that drive to be a head coach is the opposite of, say, Ryan Grubb, an offensive coordinator at Washington, who's openly stated, I want to be a head coach one day. He's still their OC, but this is probably his last year in doing that before somebody gives him a head coaching opportunity and he leaves the school. It's not an indictment on the school. It's actually, as Andrew kind of hints at here in the question, it's actually a feather in the cap of your head coach because part of running a successful program over a long period of time is having, as Lanning referred to, a Rolodex of guys that you can go to and understanding what goes into making a good hire. I mean, part of the way that we evaluate Lanning, or at least we should be, as a head coach, is what sort of hires does he make? What sort of coaches does he have in place around him? Because you can't do this thing alone. But you are going to have to make hires time and time and time again. And that's part of why, you know, Nick Saban's been so successful because he can get big-time coaches there because he's had a lot of success. And he's replaced this coordinator with that coordinator, and it's gone very well for him. So that's just the nature of... I think hiring younger, more ambitious coaches like that, or in Saban's case, you know, he hires head coaches who get fired. Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, Bill O'Brien, guess what? They've all gone on to other opportunities that are probably seen as a bigger role than the Alabama offensive coordinator. That's not an indictment on Saban. It's a feather in his cap that you go there, you have a bunch of success again with a different coach, and then people want to have that coach 
because of the success he had and the association with you. So that's the challenge that's ahead of Dan Lanning here. Doesn't mean you couldn't find a guy who doesn't want to be a head coach because there is another side to it. I got I got to take another sip here. Hold on. All fired up about this topic. If 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 you're an offensive coordinator, you are responsible for recruiting. You are responsible for game planning. You're responsible for play calling in a lot of instances. You're responsible for a lot. If you are a head coach, your pay goes up because your responsibilities go up. You see nowadays in college football, especially with NIL, portal, recruiting, boosters, donors, the whole your media appearances, everything. You see a lot more CEO head coaches. In college, right, in the NFL, you see a lot of coaches that call plays. You don't see that in college as often, okay? Lincoln Riley calls plays. Chip Kelly calls plays. I don't believe Jed Fish might call plays at Arizona. I'm not sure. But I don't think Dillingham's going to call plays at ASU. Jake Dickert does not at Washington State. Kalen DeBoer does not at Washington. Jonathan Smith does not at Oregon State. David Shaw, I believe, did for Stanford for a while. He got burned out, by the way. Justin Wilcox does not at Cat. Like, if you just go down the list, Cal Whittingham doesn't call plays on either side of the ball. He's the defensive coach. Morgan Scally's their defensive coordinator. He's the one calling the plays. Uh, Deion Sanders is not going to call plays because there are so many responsibilities that come with being a head coach. So is it, to answer your question here, Andrew, is it possible to find an OC who never wants to leave Lanning's side? Yes, it is. Is it likely? No. I am not anticipating that. I'm not removing the possibility, but I anticipate if Lanning continues to run the program at a high level, succeed, win games, recruit really well, all that sort of stuff. If he continues to do that, then I anticipate Oregon probably, you know, once every two years or so, or maybe, you know, I mean, if Will, I don't, I don't think Will Stein would be as likely as Dillingham per se, because he's not quite as traveled. You know, Dillingham was uh, at Auburn, at Florida State, and then at Oregon. So Will Stein, this being his first Power Five coordinator job, it's probably not going to be a one and done sort of deal. He could be a two and done sort of guy. I could definitely see that. And then the next guy who would come in, depending on where he comes from, he could be a one and done. He could be a two and done. He could be a three, four. It just depends on on each unique situation. But but great question there. And and just to put a final point on this, our head football coach at uh, at Southern Utah University, who I work for, uh, Delane Fitzgerald, is an awesome guy. And he, I was interviewing him before a game before the season last year, and he was a play caller, but he's not a play caller now. He is an offensive coach, but he does not call plays. And I asked him about that. And he basically said what I told you is there are so many responsibilities as a head coach that you just don't always have the time for it. Some coaches decide to do that. That's fine. But the CEO model of a head coach is the most common way. Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, right? Uh, Lane Kiffin is a play caller. But again, that's more the outlier than... Uh, than the expectation now in in the coaching world. So you can find guys like that, but it's pretty darn rare. All right, last question here uh, for today on uh, 12-team playoff. This is from Balin. All right, right in for the pod, continuing on the playoff discussion from today's episode. My guys in every day are out there. At least that's the way it seems. I'm 100% with you on the 12-team playoffs. Victory. Sweet victory. I've won somebody over. 
It's just way too much, especially considering the talent disparity you get in college ball as opposed to the NFL, which is notably more balanced. My guy gets it. He's making my whole week. This is this is peak gratification for me right here. Mm-hmm. Is when I've gone on a rant over and over and I feel like I'm on an island and then someone comes and says, dude, I completely understand what you're saying and agree with you. This is this is fantastic. Listener of the week right here. Teams still suck, of course. <laughs> nice. But all of those guys are the elite of the elite. Anyway, my sweet spot is eight teams. I think six wouldn't do enough to broaden the pool of teams, but 10 to 12 is too much. It really doesn't take away any of the drama for me either. Basically, all an eight-team playoff would do is normalize the randomness of football a bit. Personally, I hate that your playoff hopes can be crushed because of the random bounce of the ball and eight teams would provide some leeway there, making it more about the overall skill of a team and not the luck of a team. To just one specific example, I get that weather is a part of the game, but wouldn't it suck to have your hope dashed because of one random strong gust of wind on an otherwise consistent day where everyone's been on the mark? Specific example, but all right. Anyway, there's my take. Sorry it got so long. What say you? Go Ducks. So that randomness is 100% a part of college football. And I'm not completely opposed to a little bit of leeway there. It's why I wouldn't oppose a 16 playoff. I wouldn't vote for it, but I wouldn't vote against it. It's why I'm in favor of the 14 playoff, because I do think it was a bit too stringent in, in the BCS. But you are now, you're like, you have kept the urgency in college football with a 14 playoff, and that is going to be taken away when you get the 12 team playoff, because a 10 and 2 team is now going to make the playoff. A 9-3 SEC team can now make the playoff under a 12-team format. That can't happen now. We've had two lost teams knock on the door of getting in. By the way, in the BCS, a two-loss LSU team won the national championship, just saying. But we've had two lost teams knock on the door of the playoff, but they haven't been let in. The door hasn't been open for them yet. And that sort of do-or-die is, for me as a college football fan, what makes the sport better than all the other ones because so much hangs in the balance every single week and a loss means so much. It's so impactful. Now, the upside is that for Oregon teams over the years who have not had that same leeway but have been national championship caliber, if you'd applied this sort of system in retrospect, they would have had a good chance. Best example, 2012. That team loses to Stanford. They end up 11-1. and Don't get to the Pac-12 championship game because they lost to Stanford, who was very, very good that year. But if you had had a 14 playoff, by the way, you would have had Oregon in the playoff, most likely. They were the number four team. Kansas State was number five. They played them in the Fiesta Bowl and, and beat them pretty comfortably. I think it was like 32-20 uh, was, was the final score, if memory serves there. But that team for instance, would have had more leeway. Or the 2013 team, Mariota's second year. They were they ended up 11-2. and two. I think they were 10-2 and two at the end of the regular season. Might have gotten themselves into the playoff. They might have been good enough. But again, even that team, you know, Mariota was hurt. And again, I, I don't know. But uh, 2011, you had two losses in the regular season. Not a fan of that getting in. Understand that that team was really, really good. But I think the 2012 team is the best example. And yes, it is great for college football that your season's playoff hopes can be dashed in a single week or now, you know, with the four-team format. And again, I'm okay with this because it's still really exciting. It can be dashed really in two weeks, but for some teams it can be dashed in one week. 
But for Oregon, that could create an upside because that 2012 team, you know, the only year that Chip and Mariota were together, they might have won the national championship, might not have. But yeah, they they were definitely good enough to be a college football playoff team. I don't think there's uh, there, there's any doubt in my mind about that. So I think that's the upside for it is if you have a team that is good enough and they just have that one instance, you know, Ertz was out, DeAnthony not throwing a block, Maldonado missing a field goal, whatever it is. If you have that one little thing, suddenly that's not what stops you from getting there. But here's the flip side of the coin. With a four-team playoff, you can have one of those games. You can't have two. And if you're actually a national championship caliber team, I don't think you're going to have two of those games. Just my personal opinion, like Alabama a year ago, you know, Nick Saban had some comments recently talking with Joel Klatt, who's who's got a really good weekly podcast, and he's been doing these coaches' interviews, and Saban was talking about, you know, well, I heard that, uh, you know, we, we would have been favored if we'd gone up against a team, so why weren't we in the playoff? Because you lost twice, Nick. Because, because you lost, very middling Nick Saban impression, by the way. Haven't worked on it before, not my best, but... You lost twice, and that's what makes the sport great. You lost twice, and they were on last-second plays. Yep, but guess what? That's what's always made college football unique, special, and different. And I think in the 14 playoff, or if you had a 16 playoff, you could have one of those. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But in a 12-team playoff, you can have at least two of those, three if you're an SEC team, and I think the positives do not even come close to outweighing the, benef- the, the the negatives there as a whole. Is there upside for the Ducks? Sure. But if you have an actual national championship caliber team, like Oregon in 2014, last time they got there, they had that one slip up against Arizona. And then they didn't have another one. So if you're actually that good, you might have one slip up. But you're not, you're not going to have two. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And go Ducks.